Okay, welcome everybody. Thank you for the effort to, uh, to be on time. For those of you listening, I made a remark yesterday at the men's meeting. I talked about effort in church and making the effort to be here on Sunday, and I just mentioned in passing to be here on time, and I proceeded to get hurled with accusations of being a legalist, <laughs> which tells you how much freedom we have here at GCA when the suggestion of being on time gets you accused of being a legalist. <laughs> so enjoy the freedom. Tonight it is my intention to speak on pride. This is something that I've thought about for a while, and it, it kind of triggered home when this past Sunday when Jim was preaching on uh, Matthew, and we'll get to that a little later on, but I thought there was a section there that to me at least, involved pride in a very big way, but there were also other elements to it, elements that Jim covered, and I'm kind of sitting going, you know, if he lets that fall, I'm going to pick it up on Wednesday. <laughs> so that kind of uh, took care of it for me, that, that that's what I wanted to talk about tonight. So let's begin with prayer. Let's, uh, let's unite our thoughts and, and get rid of the... Uh, daily efforts and daily, uh, daily troubles, and let's try to concentrate on God's Word. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of living in America where we can worship you and worship your Word in peace, where we can come here in nice weather to a building you provided for us so that we can concentrate and read your scriptures. We thank you, Father, for the group that you brought together today, that we could fellowship together. And we thank you, Father, that you have taken care of this day and brought us all safely here. And we pray also for a safe trip home. We pray that, uh, Father, you will use me tonight. Uh, sometimes you stand in the pulpit and you don't feel 100%, but that's just an opportunity, Father, for you to show off and to, uh, to show your way and, and to take me through this. And Father, I, I ask that you, uh, you help me through this, this sermon tonight. I pray that you will be glorified. I ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, the subject tonight is pride. And you can't get farther in the Bible than the Garden of Eden before you jump right on pride. So I'll just kind of use that as the, the basic intro where the, uh, the fruit is, is put up and it is shown to be good for the uh, lust of the flesh. Obviously, it, it is food to eat. It is good to look at. It is for lust of the eyes. And then the key is also involved in pride of life because the serpent says, you will be like God. And is there any greater example of pride of life than have somebody like the serpent say, you will be like God? I mean, that would get just about anybody's attention. Uh, let's define terms. And this was fascinating because as I tried to get definitions of pride, the intensity of them actually varied considerably. The definition from Google for pride is a feeling or deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. Well, that's not so bad. 
you know, that's, we, we can kind of live with that. But then I go to dictionary.com and the intensity cranks up. They define pride as a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority. That's a much more intense definition. And then I go to the, uh, this is the Greek word used for pride. I'm not going to even try to pronounce it. But the definition given for that is one of haughtiness, arrogance, the characteristic of one who with a swollen estimate of his own powers or merits looks down on others and even treats them with insolence or contempt. The definition of pride just gets worse. I didn't think I need to go any farther than that. Mm. You can see why God doesn't like pride. As I was looking in the, uh, the internet for various things with pride, I found that pride was often associated with low self-esteem, which was a bit of a surprise to me. Because when I think of pride, I think of somebody strutting. I think of somebody with maybe too high an esteem, thinks too much of themselves. Pride fits that to me. But yet, I see a lot of things in, in the uh, discussion on this where they were talking about low self-esteem and how that works into pride. Follow the reasoning here. Low self-esteem, and we're talking about things like depression and fear, anxiety, hypersensitivity. For example, uh, calling people names and it just tears some people up. This low self-esteem is often thought of is as the opposite of pride, but it is often a form of pride in itself. It's a form of pride all its own. Some people might have low self-esteem because they like when others feel sorry for them and they're manipulating the situation. They like it when somebody comes up and gives them a pat on the back. So if they kind of lower down and gee, life sure is terrible and someone comes up and says, oh, can I help you? That's what they want. They are maneuvering the situation so they'll feel better. They like it when people pay attention to them or give them comfort. And low esteem can be a way of saying, look at me, I'm miserable, which is just as much self-absorbed as pride in yourself. You're just maneuvering the situation to do that, and you're using what appears to be low self-esteem to get the job done. Low self-esteem is just another form of self-obsession and selfishness. One form that pride takes in our life is low self-esteem, and we criticize or judge others. And when we do this, because we do this because we often have troubles with low self-esteem, we pick at the stuff in other people's lives, we show judgment at what they are, and because we're able to pick up the stuff that's, your, that's wrong in your life, it makes us feel better. It elevates us while we're pointing what's wrong in your life. And as a result, we feel better about ourselves. This elevates ourselves with pride. And this, of course, takes us straight to Matthew 7, 3. And the quote is, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is your own eye? That's straight pride. Low self-esteem can be the major contributing factor of a form of pride, Low self-esteem causes us to present a strong outside appearance, and yet inside, we're just a mess. Mm -hmm. 
We may be a mess physically, we may be a mess emotionally, maybe our history's just a bit of a mess, we're full of fear, and yet we put on the strong outside look to make everything look good, and that's the form of your outside pride rather than let somebody see in the way you really are. And really, when you're dealing with somebody, don't you want to know the truth about them, what their feelings really are, and where you could really help them, meet them where they are? Well, if somebody's putting on a strong outside appearance and showing pride in their outside appearance, it can be a little difficult to do that. Often we inflate ourselves to distract away from the feelings of inadequacy, and that is pride. So that's low self-esteem. I try to turn up the intensity, and I look for high self-esteem. But before I got to that, I got to the middle ground. And listen to the middle ground. This is just self-esteem, not low or high. And this is dictionary.com. A realistic respect for or a favorable impression of oneself. Okay, definition two. An inordinately or exaggeratedly favorable impression of oneself. Exaggerated favorable impression. Wouldn't that be high or over high esteem? I couldn't even get to a definition of high esteem. I hit low, I hit the middle self-esteem, and then everything just kind of fell apart from there. Pride is dangerous for many reasons, but one of the greatest reasons is because it gets in the way of hearing God. Psalm 25, verse 9 says, He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble His way. This is God leading, and if your pride is getting in the way of hearing that, then there's not going to be much leading the humble in what is right. If pride gets in the way, God can and will turn up the intensity to get your attention. Make life easier on yourself, stick your pride away, and let God get a hold of you. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 17, verse 10, You also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. That's a good quote. There's no pride there. That is Luke chapter 17, verse 10. The quote again, you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. There's no pride in that there at all, but boy, that is truth. And that is Jesus speaking, by the way. That's, that's red letter stuff there. In the King James translation on Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, and, and I love this translation. That's why I went to King James for this particular one. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You don't find reasonable service in many other translations, but that certainly makes all the sense in the world. Again, we're just doing it for the duty that we owe Jesus and the duty that we owe our Father. James chapter 4 Verse 6 tells us that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. That's Proverbs 18, 12. 
Now we get to watch me draw here. Before destruction, before that comes haughty or pride. Before honor comes humility. Key words here are before. This comes first, then comes this. If you get a chance to observe this in your life, please put on the brakes because you're heading towards destruction. The pride comes first, then the destruction. Humility it leads to honor. Humility also involves a, a humble nature. And the humble nature is given to us by the grace of God. And now we come across a gift of God that we can't do without him. We can't be in this position here of grace. We can't be in that position leading to honor without the gift of grace first. Without the gift of grace, we're stuck up here where you don't want to be and remember where it leads to. So even though you're not necessarily in the destruction phase or honor phase or whatever your, your final uh, target ends up being, remember that when you can feel pride or when you can feel that you've done the right thing here as far as the humility is concerned, whatever humility or humble nature you have is a result of the grace of God. And without that, there's only one other alternative. You're going to be stuck up there where you certainly don't want to be. Again, that's Proverbs 18, verse 12. Before destruction is pride, before honor is grace and humility. You can see it coming. There are many shapes of pride. And pride can come from a rich man or a poor man. You can see pride in a Christian or an atheist. Certainly in the Garden of Eden, pride came in the form of a serpent in the shape of a serpent, as, as he brought, the, uh, brought uh, Adam and Eve the uh, fruit. So shape takes all kinds of forms, and that's all the more reason to keep your mind open. And if God is reaching you and saying, look out, something's not quite right, it's probably true. Charles Spurgeon describes pride as the firstborn son of hell is indeed like its parent, all unclean and vile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, can that man talk? That's the definition of pride. The firstborn son of hell, like its parent, all unclean and vile. We have reasons for almost everything, but there's no reason for pride. Pride is a thing which should be unnatural to us because we have nothing to be proud of. Here we are human beings, most of us in the area of four and a half to six and a half feet tall. We're standing on the third rock from a sun, not third rock from the sun, third rock from a sun. We can look to the left and right wherever we go and it just goes on and on and we're still, we're still standing on the rock, no big deal. 
My friend Siri on iPad tells me that the Earth is 24,901 miles circumference. That's a long way. That's a big rock we're standing on, little us. And we're proud. And that's just one of the rocks in the universe. We can look to the heavens and see how deep that goes. We've done enough space travel now that we've got an even better feel as far as reaching the moon. We look in telescopes, and the things that we have found lately in the last 10 to 15 years on telescopes are absolutely amazing. We're seeing things that we didn't know there. For a long time, we thought the Milky Way was basically the universe, and this big spiral eclipse kind of thing, and all the planets were part of that, and that's, that was creation. Well, we see way beyond that now, and there's lots of Milky Ways floating around. Had no idea of it before, but we sure know it now. And we know it because we're standing on that third rock from a sun, <laughs> big human beings, us, full of pride. How silly. Just looking at God's creation should completely humble us. What do we have that we can rest our pride on? Job chapter 12, verse 10 says, In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of of all mankind. The more we have, the more we are in debt to God. Consider our depravity and how far God came to get us. He came a long way to get us and he came where we are because we couldn't come to him. Remember, dead in trespasses means that we're not going anywhere. We're not going to do anything to contribute to our salvation. We're not going to do anything to get God to come to us. He has made the trip all the way here to come and get us. God came a long way and consider the great price paid for that depravity we have as we stand on this rock. Little old sinful us. How can we possibly be proud? Is the one who saved another from drowning proud? How about if you got saved from drowning? Do you have reason to be proud because somebody came and saved your life? Is the survivor of a brain surgery, that would be me, proud because I survived it? No. Is the unconscious person who is pulled from a fire by a firefighter proud? No. There's just no room for pride in life at all. Like I said moments ago, what do we have that pride can possibly rest on? Where would we be if we didn't have grace to rest in? God's mercy keeps us from destruction. Not our efforts, but it's God's mercy that does that. Left to our own, we are in big, big trouble. There is no wisdom in pride. There is no wisdom in beating your chest and saying, look at me. One speaks in pride, in pride, and no sooner have the words left your lips than all that's left is empty air. Try it. Say the word. It comes out, and then there's, there's nothing. The one who loves money and builds a fortune at least has a large bank account, probably a large house. But the one who has only pride can't even pay his first bill. Pride has no crown, but it thinks it does. 
Babylon. Let's talk about Nebuchadnezzar when we're talking about pride. Let's go to Daniel 4 and read. Now, let's start at Daniel 4.4. This is a great story of the king of Babylon. He was the greatest king of Babylon. They had a bunch of them. Much land was under his dominion. Reading in Daniel chapter 4, verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a, a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. The magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretations. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the garden at its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top stretched to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said this, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. And the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. And Daniel interprets the dream. Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. 
The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached the heavens and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which the beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king. So King Nebuchadnezzar is this great tree that provides food and shelter for the world. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. Here it comes. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be confirmed for you from the time you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And the dream comes true. Verse 28, all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? What pride! While the words are still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. The kingdom has been driven from you. God is in control of the kingdom of Babylon. Verse 32, And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird, bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing, 
and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none shall stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar has been through quite an event. The great pride as being the great king described as a tree that goes up so high that it feeds the entire planet. And he's brought down, brought down to where he's chewing grass like an ox. And God does it because it's God's will. God's in control of Babylon. God takes the kingship from him. God puts him in the field to get his mind right. God will turn up the intensity on pride if that's what it takes to get your mind right. He certainly did it with Nebuchadnezzar. Humility is to think rightly about yourself. Humility is to realize that we're sinners, that we're depraved. Humility is to realize we need a doctor. We need a savior. It is not humility to stand up and depreciate yourself when you know it's not true. Don't just say things that look kind of humble and you know, kind of give it a little shake like that when you don't believe a word of it. That's not humility. Humility is to feel that we have no power of ourselves, and we don't, because all that we have comes from God. All blessings are from God. May the Holy Spirit keep us from pride and produce in our hearts humility. Now let's get to this past Sunday. Pastor was talking in uh, Matthew chapter 16, and you can turn there right now. I'll be there in a second. But he was talking about Peter saying that Jesus is the Christ. Remember the disciples also had a bit of an issue in Matthew 20 with James and John when the mother came and wanted special treatment for her two sons. Now, I've been in groups that had a obvious leader, and everybody was basically subservient to that leader. And there is very often a juggling of position trying to find a way to get more influence or maybe even make your spot a little more safe. And we saw that with the mother of James and John, who went to Jesus and asked if she could have, have a special influence and have James and John have a special position. Let's go there. Let's not just... Let's go to Matthew 20. Matthew 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him... She asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And they said to him, we are able thereby proving that they didn't know what they were asking. <laughs> so we see in this group of disciples, there's already a battle going on for power with at least two of them. And if two of them are feeling this way, it wouldn't be surprised if others are. Verse 24, and when the 10 heard it, that's the other ones. Verse 24, when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. 
So they've got some emotional involvement in this as the sons of Zebedee are jockeying for position of power. Peter is one of those ten that are indignant. Now, let's go to Matthew 16, where we were on Sunday. Uh, Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And here comes the big one. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And I'm telling you right there, that's the last thing Simon Barjona hears. Jesus has just given him the biggest pat on the back you could ever ask for. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. But Jesus continues, he says, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I don't think Peter heard that. I think he heard the big pat on the back, got the blessed from Jesus, and by gosh, he felt good about it. And pride swelled up, because look what happens verses later. This is in verse 21. Just move a few verses ahead. From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Remember, Peter has just been given a big pat on the back and he's full of himself. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's how good Peter feels about himself at this point took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you, as if Peter has control. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What a fall. What a fall from the pride of Jesus saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona to get behind me, Satan. That's a big, big drop. I think Peter had a hard time with that. I think the reason that Jesus did that here is that he wanted to make sure that he was going to take this on his own and and suffer himself, and he needed to make sure to get Peter out of the way because Jesus was going to take this alone, and no human is going to glory in his presence He'll cover it himself. He needed Peter out of the way. The easy way to do that was to use Peter's pride, give him the big pat on the back, get him full of himself, and then when it comes time here, and he tells him, get away from me, Satan, and Peter is so crushed, you've got to know he's turned and he's walking. And the key, Jesus has used pride here to get this done. In the first place... We shall have something to say concerning the vice of pride. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. Pride, what is it? Pride, where is its seat? Its seat is in the heart of man. And what is the consequence of pride? The consequence of pride is destruction. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. And the very first one he says, verse 17, 
haughty eyes, pride, the very first one he mentions. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. That's a clear definition. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. And then it says pride and arrogance are the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So to avoid pride, to avoid it at all costs, is to be fearful of the Lord. So God hates the sin of pride. He calls it evil. He does not hate the prideful person, but hates the pride in that person. And that's important for us to understand. Why is it that God feels so strongly about pride? Well, here's a few reasons. Pride tends to promote self-sufficiency. This deals with phrases like the self-made man, feeling pretty good about yourself. I accomplished this. It's political times now. We get to see plenty of that. Thank God everybody's here and not watching the politicians on TV tonight make fools of themselves. But pride promotes self-sufficiency, and in doing that, it gets our eyes off of God. Most sin has its roots in some form of pride. Remembering pride comes in all kinds of shapes. And pride, it has the ability to destroy lives. And I've seen that coming from music, and, and I'm old enough that I've just seen it in life walking around. Uh, sports stars, they have plenty of pride. We often forget the fact that when we watch somebody in the National Football League or, or somebody at any major level of sports, these people have been stars since they were teenagers. It's, it's virtually impossible to get to the National Football League without being a college hero and certainly a major hero in high school. Now, your degree of pride and, and the big man on campus does get smaller as you get up because we've got more big men on campus in high schools than we do have in colleges because colleges start weeding them out. And then, of course, we go from college to the professionals, and they start weeding them out. And, oh, my, the downfall when the almighty college guy who is the big man on campus is now selling shoes somewhere or asking if you want lids on these. You know? <laughs> that can be mighty terrible to see it in, in a sports star go crashing down, and sometimes it will happen after they're, they're in their uh, sports career, and you see things like alcoholism and drug addiction take care of it. Sports stars can't help but be involved in pride to some matter because you've got people around you that just basically worship you. I can't imagine how you do that. I mean, I've been in music, but not to the degree of somebody who's a, an all-pro football player. That's got to be difficult to deal with. We are guilty of spiritual pride when we depend on our merit and not on God's grace. And God will do what it takes to break the pride in us. God enables us to stand against pride in our lives, but it can only happen if we understand his grace and his mercy. I'd like to go to the end of Job now, Job 42, just the, the first few verses of it. Job 42, this is him showing humility after what has gone through the previous 41 chapters. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? 
Therefore I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful to me which I do not know. Here I will speak, I will question you, and you will make known to me. I have heard you by the hearing of the ears, but now my eye sees you. And therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job has got into a very humble state here, and this is a good place to be when you're talking to God. Look how he starts that off. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's, that's quite a nice intro to talk to God. Luke chapter 14, verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's Luke 14, verse 11. Psalm chapter 16, verse 2 reminds us, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. That, that's a pretty good understanding of your own depravity and how much you need him. Mm-hmm. Apart from him, I have no good thing. Now, I think I'm near the end of where I want to be. Good. We're going to finish with one of my favorite spots in the Bible, and let's go read it. Let's go to Romans 7. This is just so comforting. Romans chapter 7, let's start at verse 15. This is Paul talking about his internal battle with the Holy Spirit inside him, with the fleshly nature that he is. And they're both just as real as can be. Even though a man in Paul's position, the battle continues. Beginning at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not know what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. So he knows what he should be doing. He knows it in his head. But his flesh, he finds himself doing the very thing that he hates. That he knows he shouldn't be doing. Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin who dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, and that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And that is a battle that, that I constantly fight with. And, and it is so obvious to me, I just kind of wondered, are there Christians that don't have that battle? Are, are there anybody that really have such great control over their flesh that there is no battle between a, a Holy Spirit inside and, and the remnants of sin and the flesh that's left in them? For I have the desire to do what is right, so you know what's right. You've read the word but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. I keep doing the wrong thing. I keep getting drawn to it. Verse 20. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I do what is right, evil lies close at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the laws of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He's aware he's deeply stained with sin, and finally he just crumbles in verse 24 and says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? From this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And the battle continues. Like I said, when I, when I saw this and I got a good grasp of this, I sure understood Christianity a little better, at least the Christianity that I'm experiencing. This helps deal with pride, too, because there's no room for pride in what Paul is just talking about here because the sin is, is stuck in you. It's just part of the flesh. And until we get a new body and a new heart, the battle rages on. But you know what it does? When you know the battle's there, it keeps you humble. Mm-hmm. It keeps you remembering what a mess you are. It keeps you remembering who's working inside you who's helping to complete you. That's very comforting. Comfort is a good thing to have when you've got a body deeply stained in sin. That's tonight's thoughts on pride. I might have just been speaking to the choir here and just told you what you already knew, but this whole idea of dealing with pride and how it comes in so many different shapes, it's such a key to what God hates. God just hates pride and And there's nothing to it, especially people that speak with the prideful words. Like I had mentioned, the the words of pride come out, and no sooner do the words leave your lips that all you have is empty air. Mm -hmm. Big deal. You can't lean on empty air. So when you see yourself being pulled in a direction away from pride, you feel the spirit pulling you away from that, take heed. Life will be better for you. You think you'll find more comfort. And thank God the Spirit is fighting inside us against sin. Shame for the people who don't have that Spirit in them fighting against sin. They have no idea what I'm talking about. Praise God. That's it for tonight. Thank you for coming.